I'd like to begin with a letter in a bottle. So in the summer of 1812, the, the kind of the local worthies in Barnstable began to discover they had an unpleasant uh, new neighbour who had taken lodgings in the nearby seaside village of Lynmouth. And his behaviour was said to be very suspicious. He was carrying out a very extensive correspondence and many of his packages and letters were addressed to the radical MP Sir Francis uh, Burdett, and it was said that he sent off so many as 16 letters by the same post. But he was also frequently seen to go out into a boat a short distance from land and drop some bottles into the sea, and that at one time he was observed to wade into the water and drop a bottle which afterwards drifting ashore was picked up and on being broken into was found to contain a seditious paper. And this... Uh, this is the seditious paper, this, this Declaration of Rights, which contains statements that no civilised person could, could approve of. So number 12 there, for example, says, A man has a right to unrestricted liberty of discussion. Falsehood is a scorpion that will sting itself to death. Or number 24, uh, a Christian, a deist, a Turk and a Jew have equal rights. They are men and brethren. So appalling. This is appalling, obviously. Uh, so the, these are the words that outraged the good people of uh, Barnstable. Uh, 1812 was obviously quite a tense year. That's the year that Spencer Percival was assassinated. Britain's at war uh, with France. is at war with America. Um, so when a man was found distributing these pamphlets in town, he was very quickly uh, arrested and he was searched and the papers that he was carrying were immediately sent to the Home Secretary, Lord Sidmouth, in London. And it's very lucky that they were because that, that's what preserved for us the only copy of this poem, The Devil's uh, Walk. So once early in the morning, Beelzebub arose with care, his sweet person adorning, he put on his Sunday clothes. Now this contains all sorts of nasty satires about the conflicts in Spain, um, the foreign secretary, poor, kind of incapacitated King George. Satan next saw a brainless king whose house was as hot as his own. Many imps and attendants were there on the wing. They flapped the pennon and twisted the sting close by the very throne. Now this is not the work of the poor man arrested in Barnstable, it was written by the suspicious neighbour. And the suspicious neighbour was, of course, um, Percy Shelley. The National Archives is the archives of government, so it's never systematically collected poetry or musical material, and yet you find, scattered through the collection, these extraordinary survivals which we, we don't find anywhere else. And there's no research guide on this material, and there isn't a comprehensive list of it. It's not been systematically researched or published, but that's very exciting because that means that we can kind of put a fresh eye to some of this uh, material. And the 18th century is a real, is a real strength of it because that's a period in which poems and songs can get you into a real trouble and you've got a very kind of fervid atmosphere of revolution in various places and all this concern about uh, sedition. So here is a very seditious uh, song sent in by the uh, mayor of uh, Yarmouth and it's called The, the Triumph of uh, Liberty, and this sort of colophon thing on the top here conceals this, this wording uh, here where um, King George, uh, George III, has become King Graft. And obviously we don't have any music here, we've just got the, the words, but they're set to a, a popular tune that we know, we know, so we know, we know it's set to Hearts of Oak, which is still sung in the Navy, so we, you know, we know how this song goes. And even if a uh, tune isn't provided, there might be some other clues. So this is uh, just this is a bit filthy, just to warn you. This is uh, this is Sue Wellfleet's bargain, which is also from the 18th century, um, and it's from a, a book which I've I've I brought in, and uh, has has a number of songs. And this is a song about a kind of confrontation between a kind of saucy fish uh, stall proprietor 
and an uptight French customer that she is very rude to. And so it's a, a kind of fine old example of sort of fine old English xenophobia. And I particularly like the way that the Frenchman is made to speak in this very odd kind of, um, you know, a shilling, my dear, parble and for what? For one half the money, I bet. So you're talking this rather strange kind of hybrid of like comedy French and comedy German. And, but, it has, but it has a refrain, it has this Derry Down refrain. Now, if Derry, um, Down Derry Down is a, is a sea shanty. So, in fact, again, we know what, we know what this uh, song also sounds like, and it sounds a little bit like this. As Frisky Sue Wellfleet was sat in her stall, surrounded with fish and the devil and all, uh, Mr. John Foutre and the Intrim came by. At fish and at flesh, both he cast a sheep's eye, Derry Down, 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 Derry Down. Okay, you get the idea. So... <laughs> So it might be, perhaps it's 200 years since anybody, you know, murdered that uh, quite that way. Uh, but I have, when I, see these, when I see these pieces, I really want to, it's like when you go to a, a museum collection, you see kind of instruments behind kind of glass cases, and they're sort of sitting there, and you tend to really want to hear how they go. So, you know, these, these pieces are kind of silent, but they, they'd like to be played. So, for example, one of the bodies of records where we find musical material in some, some quantity... Is, uh, is in HCA, uh, the High Court of Admiralty. So these form part of the prize papers in HCA 32 and 65. And basically when ships were seized in kind of either legal or illegal activities, their, their papers were confiscated by the government. And those might include, you know, perhaps they were carrying, uh, you know, letters from America or France or uh, what have you. They might be commercial or trade documents, but you might also find, you know, pieces of music uh, like this. So this is a complete set of six uh, sonatas for two uh, violins um, with a bass by this uh, Monsieur de Souffrin, and they're intended for his, his patron and his relative, the, the Comte de Grouchet. Now, de Souffrin and de Grouchet were both supporters of George Washington uh, against the British. So these, these handwritten uh, sonatas became a kind of casualty of the War of Independence, and it's very likely they've never been performed which does seem a terrible shame. And in fact, since I first looked at this, I, I know now of two other piece, pieces that have been found since I, I saw this first in um, HCA 32. So you can see one in the museum um, at the moment, which has been taken from the, uh, the Henrietta. So when we're talking about material that's kind of missing in action, I mean, obviously the outstanding survivals are medieval. And a lot of these documents are what we call safe room documents, they can only be seen in a special room upstairs where they kind of lock you in and watch you with cameras, uh, like slightly like being in a maximum security prison, but because these documents are so precious, but because they've never been systematically looked at, they actually, you do find that they're not all safe from documents, so you could order this one upstairs this afternoon if you wanted, and this is a, a wrapper in the same way uh, that was being described with maps earlier, so again, this is, this is wrapped around a document from the reign of Queen Mary. It's been reused as the cover for another document, and you can see it's a liturgical document for use during a service from the 14th century, and now it's looking after some 16th century custom records. And what's happened in between is obviously the dissolution of the monastery. So uh, this is uh, our, what of our images from Valor Ecclesiastica, so Henry VIII's great survey of the monasteries. And um, as... Thomas Cromwell's agents went around. I mean, occasionally they would casually see the odd book that they fancied and just nick it and send it back to um, Cromwell in London. But by and large, people like Richard Layson here, the, the book they were most interested in was just literally the rent book. And so a lot of these libraries were just dispersed. Perhaps you might find 10% now would survive 
uh, say, from you know, monasteries in Canterbury, which you might find in Canterbury Cathedral Library today. And perhaps so if Cromwell had grabbed more, perhaps we would have more. So uh, although we have a few survivals, a lot of them are, you know, are things that end up in this sort of condition. So what we have here are not readers, but board clerks have taken to scribbling on what has become sort of the only modern equivalent of kind of chip paper. Um, so you've got paper merchants kind of reselling this stuff in bulk, and it is a little bit heartbreaking. I mean, it's not the only route that the documents like this can take to enter the collections here, but it's, it's kind of one route. And also before the founding of the Public Record Office by Henry Cole, you see Julie mentioned him in one of his more bonkers uh, guises as uh, the kind of arbiter of the nation's taste, but um, he has this kind of this, this great... Uh, has kind of gifted us this this organisation. Not all, but before he got involved, not all of these documents were kept in ideal conditions. So you see, things look a bit like uh, this. And you know, we could we, we could work with this. This would you know take a bit of take a bit of work. But most most of that piece is sort of available. This this Kyrie is not is not doing so well, which is a, which is a shame because if you I mean there's some absolutely gorgeous. Um, Illumination there, and I assume it's it's cataloged as a Kyrie. I assume, which is obviously the first section of the mass, Kyrie eleison. This ornamental K is presumably what the archivist used to go. Well, yes, that's definitely a Kyrie because actually the music is um, not doing so well for itself there. Um, so you'd need a lot of love and time, and probably most importantly, an imagination, um, you know, for us to kind of hear some semblance of what this sounded like unless it could be identified by a, uh, a, a real expert on um, medieval music, as perhaps as a, you know, a, that there are comparable examples. It may be a, f a familiar setting of a, of a mass. I'm, I'm not such an expert. Um, but I can spot a big name composer when I see one. So we had, do have some pieces here by John Bull, the um, Elizabethan Jacobean um, composer. And he was a very kind of rock and roll composer. Um, he punched a priest. He's supposed to spend some time as a spy. And the most famous quote about him is probably from the Archbishop of Canterbury, George Abbott, who said, The man hath more music than honesty and is as famous for marring of virginity as he is for fingering of organs and virginals. And the virginals are a relative of the harpsichord that are popular um, in this period. And in fact, it's been, it's been cropped, but there's, this is a portrait of um, Bull on the left in Oxford. And there's a, there's a motto around the, the frame. Which, which says, the, the bull by force in field doth reign, but the bull by skill, goodwill doth gain. And actually, the more I think about that, actually, the creepier it, um, it seems to me. But anyway, those Elizabethans, they love, their, they love their puns. Actually, Archbishop Abbott's own vice was hunting. And so here's a pub quiz fact for you, that what he and Dick Cheney have in common is they both went hunting with somebody and shot them, but George Abbott shot his guy with a crossbow and killed him. So, uh, the, yes, the Virginals. Um, so Queen Elizabeth I uh, played the Virginals, and the composer Peter Phillips tells this story in which Bull is kind of lurking, out, and maybe he lurked a lot, lurking to listen to her play them outside a room. And he, he, kind of, he kind of trips and falls into the room. So he says, Philip says, by mischance did sprawl into the Queen's Majesty's presence to the Queen's great disturbance. She, demanding incontinent the wherefore of such presumption, Master Bull with great skill said that wheresoever majesty and music so well combined, no man might abase himself too deeply. In other words, this is why he's you know, on the floor in a heap. Whereupon the Queen's majesty was mollified and said, so rare a bull hath song as sweet as bird. And the bird is the composer, William Bird, who was Bull's teacher and 
senior by about 20 years. So Ball was certainly a kind of virtuoso um, keyboard player, and he's most famous for his keyboard uh, works. But are Ball pieces, which seem to have been written during the period perhaps when he was in charge of music for James I's son, Prince Henry, uh, down there, they're vocal parts, which makes them quite unusual. And that's why it's a great shame that a lot of them are quite short, or, and at least one of them is incomplete, being three uh, parts out of five. Uh, but I have I've, I've brought one set of those for you to look at. And Bull's career in England was as abbreviated as some of our pieces, because after about three years after he wrote them, um, he fled the country for Belgium. He got involved in a court case, and some of his kind of extracurricular activities that we've already referred to um, caught up with him. So skipping forward to the 300 years or so, here's another piece associated with sort of law-breaking. So this music was intercepted by MI9 during the First World War, and they were the section in charge of postal censorship, and they were set up to really prevent exactly this sort of thing. So the, the piece here, step on the ladder of love, it's a step in the right direction. Each step on the ladder of love leads to the land of affection, although in this case, that land is... Deutschland, it's Germany. Um, so Courtney de Reichsbach was a British vaudeville performer uh, with Austrian parents, and he was interned by the Germans. He was, on, he was on tour in Germany with his, I think, a bicycling act, and he ended up in a prisoner war camp, and he, he bargained his freedom by agreeing to spy for the Germans. And in fact, this, this sheet music and another piece on the way to Dublin town gave information about a new ammunition factory here in Richmond, and he said, it's a very big affair and very well guarded. And MI9 thought that he had used a toothpaste impregnated with potassium ferrocyanide to write his messages. Although he said that he did it using um, like hair lacquer, but they couldn't work out. So there's some, there's some dispute about how exactly um, this, is, this, is, this is scribbled. Is yes, that's right. Yeah, so this is, this is, this is an invisible message which um, the MI9 workers treated in order to make it visible, they saw some signs that perhaps this was, this was a, 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 a dodgy one. Um, although they used to scribble on everything, there are lots of pictures in there, uh, in the KV-1 file, they used to kind of scribble on everything, I think. Um, obviously, songs played a recruitment role uh, during the First World War, and there are some preserved in the Kitchener papers. Um, Field Marshal Lord Kitchener was the Secretary of State for War, appointed by Herbert Asquith on the day uh, that war was declared, August the 5th. And by August the 28th, Kitchener was receiving sheet music Four songs like this. So this is this is for war, from the north, from the south, from the east, from the west. You've all left your jobs to obey, and to men like you, we hold it due that Britain's on top today. So we often talk about jingoism in the context of the First World War in a rather abstract sort of way. This is this is kind of uh, the 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 kind of the the, the poster child, the jing the jingle for jingoism. And here's another example, again sort of focusing on this theme of togetherness. Uh, Morris Easter, our, our friend and forces. Uh, the boy in the blue and the chap in khaki, colonial volunteers, and, and I'm not going to say what rhymes with khaki in 1914. You can have a guess, because the Germans are sallow, and there's a little yellow man from staunch Japan. So this was not written by a man encumbered by political correctness. Um, Easter tells Kitchener, it's a song designed to encourage enlistment and to increase the national fund. A word from your lordship would do more towards the singing and selling of the song than all my puny efforts whilst there is sufficient merit in it to ensure constant sales. I don't know what Sainsbury's uh, would make of that, uh, but Easter goes on to make clear that all the proceeds will go to the National Defence Fund or to a soldier's fund. So this is a kind of charity song. It's live aid for war. 
one more. So this is Henry Nesson Graham writing for the Empire League of Patriots, who are complaining that it's really jolly unfair that the over 40s, or over 41s technically, I suppose, um, aren't able um, to, well, um, no, you say, I'm over 40, much too old to march and drill. Come, your lordship, think it over. I'm not too old to kill. Uh, and again, at the end, only let me kill a dozen, six, four, one, or have a try. Come, your lordship, be a comrade. I'm young enough to die. So documents like this I mean, play a huge role in reminding us that contemporary views of the war are not the same as ours, and we have to resist the temptation to, to project them back. Um, but here's a story that could come straight out of a World War II film. Um, in January 1944, MI9, a different MI9, who were in charge of uh, recovering, one of the things they do is recover troops from behind enemy lines, and they support um, prisoners of war in escape efforts. Um, so they were debriefing an escaped French prisoner of war, and his name was André Henry Day. And he'd been taken prisoner by the Germans in June 1940, but he'd escaped, and he'd made it back to the Baltic port of Stettin, from where he managed to reach England. <clears throat> and he provides MI9 with all sorts of useful details about ships in and out of the town and its defences and a map and so on and so forth. But he also talks about how they kept up morale in the POW camp that he escaped from, which is Dunzig, where they used to sing this song with the following chorus. And I'm not, I hesitate to translate this, but let's just say the Germans, they do like it off them. They really do like it off them. Um, and André explained that this piece was written by a Parisian journalist and set to music by a French POW composer. says, the tune is a very stirring march and was played by the camp band on the occasion of the departure of some prisoners from Dunzig to other spheres of activities. The German sentries, thinking this was a type of French national anthem, stood at the salute during its playing. Only two months after did they realise their mistake, the tune was banned. Uh, so... I mean, we've only, yeah, so we've only really scratched the surface of this material. There are not, we were talking before about six million maps, there are not six million pieces of music here, um, or, or, or indeed poems. But there is, you know, there's more that we can comfortably talk about in sort of 15, 20 minutes. Um, I'm going to finish with another poem. There are lots to choose from. The National Archives holds the original of Lord Alfred Douglas's uh, poem In Excelsis, which he wrote in prison. And then when he left prison, the government refused to give the manuscript back to him, so he had to rewrite it from memory. I'm not going to read that poem. I'm going to read my favourite poem, um, which is one of the first things I looked at when I started working at the National Archives. During the Second World War, a lot of government departments were moved out of London uh, to safer parts of the country, and I'm sure a lot of civil servants were very pleased to not be facing the Blitz, but some of them were, frankly, pissed off. Um, so this is a, a few stanzas from a poem about music moving from London to Wales. I'm sick of the sound of the sighing breeze, weary of winds that whine and wheeze, that tussle the hair and torment the trees, and end by making me sneeze and freeze. I've had enough of windows that rattle, banging and crashing as though in battle, of poets who praise with their drivelling prattle the winds that moan like bellyache cattle. I rave at the roar of the wind at the waves on the shore. I'm sick of the sands and bored with the bands. I've got the blues with Williams and Hughes and Owen St. Jones, Llewellyn and Pews. So blast Welsh earth and blast Welsh skies from Pewdew along to St. Tudno. I'd rather be dead in Paddington Green than alive in Lousy Landudno. <laughs> Thank you very much.
This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.